I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Ashley, what can the people expect? From Celebrity Memoir Book Club, you can expect the perfect fall cable knit sweater of reading, okay? It is cozy. It is fun. It is warm. And it's just like all of your favorite elements of a book without having to read. And just like you could take a sweater off if you don't like it, you can turn this off if you don't like it. But if you do like it, Ashley will be reading our five-star reviewers at the end because we love them. If you're not having fun here, sew something yourself. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would you call the chapter of your life this week? I would call it um, really fighting back some old bad habits. Which ones? Here's the thing. I've been obviously working on self-improvement for the last year and I'm a little bored and I am wondering if I should get back on dating apps for the plot, if I should just like really do some unhinged shit again for the fun of it. And I know the answer is no, but I also wonder if the answer is yes. And I ask, is there a way to do unhinged shit for the good of it? Do you know what I mean? Like not everything has to be like, what if I put myself in a precarious situation for a funny story later? But it's like, what if I took a chance? I know. And I'm trying to figure out what those chances are. I feel like I've been trying to make calculated good choices for myself. I'm happy with my life right now, which I feel like is what keeps me from shaking things up. Because I I look at my day to day and I'm like, what's to change? But I do think I need to start making some risks or calculated unhinged choices for the fun of it. Well, there's a difference between risk and reckless. That's true. It's always good to take a risk, but it can be dangerous to be reckless. Yeah. So this week would mostly be just like a quick little blurb that hopefully leads into like a funner chapter. I'm so excited. Jump off a plane, baby. Let's see where we land. Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title the chapter about last week? Just as I suspected, skin problems. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I am now proudly two days 30 and six days into a retinol regimen and my skin's coming off. That happens. I know, but I'm like, last week I was like, I'm going to turn 30 and get a sore. And instead I'm 30 and I'm being skinned alive by my own petard. I told you being 30 was just like a bed sore, but gloppier. (laughs) This is much drier than a bed sore. (laughs) This is much like being a snake. It's fun. I had a great birthday. Thank you to all the wormies who said happy birthday. I got a mug that said CNBC on it from Mean Mugging. And I also got a beautiful cake from St. Street Cakes. Two of my favorite things are mugs and cake. So... I had a good birthday. I will say my skin has fallen off, but I looked online and they said, just keep going. So I guess I'm going to continue to burn myself alive because that's (laughs) what being an adult is. Mac always goes like, how'd you get so pretty? And now I'm like, I'm burning myself. (laughs) I'm full of chemicals. I got beautiful because of the ointments and creams. I will also say now my face stinks constantly. What are you putting on your face? Acid, basically, all the time. It's not like stinky, but it's not kissable. And the problem with having a night and a day routine sure. is that it's like first thing in the morning, no, I'm already covered in vitamin C. Last thing before bed, now I have more acid on my face. And so there's never a good time to kiss. It's also hard because you have to remember when it's night and when it's day. I don't actually have that problem. I'm pretty <laughs> clear on which is which. Okay. Anyway, should we get into this week's book? Oh, shall we? In our attempt to start reading just good books, because we will put a bullet through our brain if we have to read another inane nonsense money grab from somebody we once respected. And we also probably will still do that in like one or two weeks. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're not perfect. And we are, much like the stars themselves, grabbing at money. We are reading a good book 
by someone who maybe is less prominent in your day-to-day life, but a star for sure. A genuine, I would say, movie star in her heyday. An Oscar winner, Gina Davis, spelt G-E-E-N-A, Davis, dying of politeness. So Gina Davis is well known for playing kind of bomb-ass roles. She is very cool in a lot of different things. And she was once named the most badass woman in the entertainment industry. Is that why she talks about being badass so often? Yes. That's kind of her go-to adjective. But she's very plainly says what the point of this book is. She said there was an article titled, Gina Davis is the most badass badass to ever badass. And she talks quite earnestly about how she came into herself and like why she once viewed herself as not a badass and how her, the roles she took helped her become the badass she is today. I kicked ass on screen way before I did so in real life. I think the big task of my life is to close the gap between when something happens to me and when I react authentically to it. And miraculously, the characters I've played have helped transform me slowly in fits and starts into someone who can stand up for herself and who on occasion knows how she feels about something right in the moment. I've been blessed to practice living a different life on screen, a bolder, freer, and more authentic one than my own. And though my characters were bold before I was, that boldness rubbed off on me and transformed me into a fledgling and then full-fledged badass. She tells this funny story about how bad she was at confrontation and saying no and standing up for herself that when she went to a self-defense class and one of the tasks was they had this Michelin man go up to each woman and whenever he got too close, she was allowed to beat him up. And when it came to her time, she forgot to beat him up. She says her entire family almost died of politeness. One time they were driving home with their elderly uncle, I believe. He was like 92. Yeah, and he was just drifting into the middle of the road and they were all, her whole family, she was sitting between her parents in the back seat. They're just watching it happen. And then when they are about to have a full head-on collision, her dad goes a little to the left, maybe. Because nobody wanted to be rude and suggest that maybe he shouldn't be driving. I get it. So she talks about her upbringing. She says, I chose my career very early. The Christmas when I was three, I asked Santa for sunglasses because somehow I already knew that movie stars wore them. I would wear sunglasses whenever I watched TV. That is so cute. A little it is kid. so cute. But she also says her mom's favorite story about her. It's the story about one time she was in church and she whacked her head on the pew in front of her. She was two years old. Her head went down and she like whacked it so hard it rearranged her brain. The entire church heard the collision. Mom said she grabbed me and held me tightly, quietly saying shh, and she didn't make a peep, proudly, as if I'd passed some kind of cosmic test in which I had maintained decorum and invisibility. I tell the pew story because it is the signature moment of my earliest formative years and it's the lesson that has become one of the key push-pulls of my life. Being invisible while being as visible as possible, assertive yet modest, loud yet shy, Something very New England, very self-effacing, was banged into my skull that Sunday. She also talks a lot more about her upbringing in general. Her parents were very sweet people who, she says, would have probably been Amish had they heard of being Amish. She's from Cape Cod, but an area of Cape Cod that's like past the area of Cape Cod that people vacation to. And she says that it was a very resourceful, modest upbringing. And they also had axes everywhere. Her dad collected axes and they had piles of axes. Yeah, her dad was an engineer and he was a real Mr. Fix-It. Everything in the house would be fixed themselves. And so she was raised, be frugal, but you can do it all yourself. You don't need anybody else to help you. Plumb your toilet. I don't know. Empty your drains. I don't really know what even gets built. I don't know. You and I have never lived in a home. (laughs) She is her own task rabbit. Since the day that I moved into the current apartment that I live in, In February 2021, there's like a light fixture in my living room where one of the light bulbs was out and the other one was extremely dim. 
And I have just not really been able to read or do anything in my living room at night for a year and a half. And last night I changed the light bulbs so that now I have a bright living room even when the sun goes down. And I am the most resourceful, impressive woman there's ever been. (laughs) How many Ashleys does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, baby. She's right here. I can't believe you can't tell the difference between night and day when it literally just gets dark in your apartment at night. Well, now I'll never know because it's like day all the time. Thanks to my handiness. She grew up in a very repressed, conservative neighborhood. Everybody went to church. Nobody said anything improper. And her parents specifically took this to heart. Yeah. One time she asked what a tampon was and her parents were just like, oh, no, no, no. And they never told her and she just didn't know. Yeah. What I too often learned was that the moment when for a change, I did something unsubconsciously, there'd be a big price to pay. So she tells story after story of just feeling like any time she rose her hand or stuck out or tried to go for it or, or took a leap of faith in herself. She was immediately reprimanded. She's also six feet tall, which I think is important to know. And I think she seems to be naturally pretty loud. She's told by her aunt that she loves and by a priest that she should fix her laugh because boys don't like it when women are loud. She's taller than everybody. The basketball team is always trying to get her to join. And she's like, please, please don't tell people I'm so tall. Don't look at me. If I'm in the court, people will see me. She says, my fondest wish was to take up less space in the world. And as a result, my height surely contributed to my extreme shyness. I spent an inordinate amount of time staring into the bathroom mirror, unable to recognize myself. I'd stand there and think, who is that? Who am I? I was also fixated on trying to figure out if there was anything attractive about my face. She says she remembers realizing that when she tipped her head all the way back, she looked quite pretty. And then she was like, but how am I going to get people to see me from this angle? I think we all have a photo of ourselves from being like seven or eight where at the time you're like, this is my most beautiful photo. Do you know who she does kind of remind me of is Georgia Nicholson from Angus Thong. The British Wormies are going to go crazy. I know. I was just talking about this to somebody else that I have to read that book. I think it like informed my entire being. That's what I said to someone. I go, Ashley says it changed her life. I loved it so much. And she kind of reminds me of that where she's just a sweet, well-meaning person who does crazy things. But in earnest, I love that. So she's raised to be quiet and good and sweet and helpful and very malleable. My dad's belief that I could and should do everything and anything instilled in me the sense that if a person could do it, I could do it. So she has these competing forces in her where she's like on the one hand, very confident and kind of sure that she can do anything. But on the other hand, thinks she shouldn't and isn't allowed. She's also very interested in why activities are split between girls and boys. She has a brother who she's very close to and him and all his friends got these toy guns for their birthdays or something, and they would run around the neighborhood with them. So for Christmas, she asked Santa for a gun, and her parents were like, I don't know, here's $5. Santa said, go buy yourself whatever you want. She bought herself a gun, and she would run around with the boys. Like There was no divide in her head. There was just this awareness that she was always doing something wrong. So she talks a lot about having a ton of anxiety growing up. She calls it the monster that was always on the horizon waiting for her to do something wrong, and everything she did was wrong. She seems to have like a weird anxiety, one about getting poisoned, and then she's a hypochondriac. She's just very in her head and sure that everyone's judging her. And it seems like there's a lot of external validation that she is being judged. She's constantly getting admonished anytime she speaks out, but it really makes her feel like she's always in the wrong. And she's always feeling watched because in her house, there was just an enormous lack of privacy. She said that there was a closet that separated her bedroom and her parents' bedroom, and the doors were always open. The door to her bedroom was always open. She's like, it never even occurred to me that I, as a teenager now, could just shut the doors. I think that just the constant anxiety, it really drove her nuts. Also, the lack of confrontation in her household made it so that her anxiety never went checked. 
her cat went missing one day and her parents told them that it went to live with a different family. And so she spent all of her young years looking out for the cat and worried that it's not a bad family or what if it didn't find the new family. And so she spends five years everywhere they go, like looking for their cat. And she's like, why didn't they just tell me the cat died? Instead of just being sad once, I spent years on edge thinking that my cat was out there and was able to be found. She also tells a story about having a paper route and there was a man on the paper route who would invite her in and he did molest her when she was younger. She didn't understand what was happening. And one day she asked her mom about it. And that was the one time she saw her mom confront someone. He would always give her a hug. And then he started kind of groping her with his knuckle. You know what I mean? He would like kind of like swipe his knuckle. So her clothes were always on and she had no idea what was going on. And she said she was so actually naive that she was completely unaware of the sexual undertones of the area of her body that he was touching. And so she showed her mom one day just innocently being like, ah, look how he hugs me. And her mom was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Except not with that language. Yeah. But because her mom never explained to her what the problem was or whose fault it was, she says that she really internalized the shame. Whatever it was, I had done something horrifically inappropriate yet again. Yes, there were landmines everywhere, some so hidden that you would never see them coming. To try to ease my stress, I took up repeating the sentence over and over to myself. In 10 years, you won't even remember this. It didn't turn out to be true, but it certainly did a lot to ease my mind at the time. So she goes to high school. Again, she has one guy that asks her out on a date once, I think. She's not unpopular, but she says she's well-liked at school, but doesn't have that many friends that invite her to hang out after school. She has a single friend. But she never feels like she fits in and she's so self-conscious that she decides the only way to survive high school is to get out. So her senior year, she signs up for a foreign exchange program. So she gets the idea because her brother had switched high schools his junior year and in his original high school, he had been kind of made fun of. And in his new high school, he was like the cool new kid. And she was like, that's what I need. The fresh start where you can come in. No one knows who you've been. No one knows how everyone else in your old school thought about you that they've like watched you grow up your entire life. So she decides to do the foreign exchange program. And the only option is Sweden. And without thinking about it, she just goes, okay. So she goes all the way to Sweden by herself for the entire year. She's not going to come home once. She gets to Sweden and is like, holy shit, I actually don't speak Swedish. And she's like, I can't believe everything here is in Swedish. And she starts writing home every single day being like, I've made a horrible mistake. I have to come home. What's going on? And her mom would just write back completely ignoring her previous letter being like, oh, Sweden sounds lovely. Here's what's happening here. And she'd be like, mom, I don't think you're reading my letters. <laughs> She's like, I'll get a job this summer. I'll pay you back every dime. What if I just make it until Christmas? You have to let me come home. And her mom would be like, so good to hear you're having a great time. Anyway, your father is working on the garden. <laughs> and so she didn't get to go home and she didn't know what to do. But sure enough, she had been taking Swedish classes at night. And because she was in a full immersion program, there's Swedish everywhere and not a drop to understand. She says she becomes completely fluent in like three months. Yeah, like by Christmas, she was just speaking Swedish. So it does kind of go according to plan. She has a much better time at Swedish school than she did at her American high school because she is the new kid. And even though she still does her weird eccentric things that tend to be just a misunderstanding, when she misunderstands something in Sweden, it's kind of brushed off as like that goofy American exchange student doing goofy American things and people really like it. So she gets a super hot boyfriend. Yeah, and that's fun. And when she comes home, she's sad to leave. And she says she has a little bit of a culture shock. She's having a hard time speaking English when she gets back home. And she stayed in touch with the boy Lars, who stayed in her town the whole time while she was gone. So years later, she's going through her parents' stuff. And she finds the box of all the letters she sent home when she was in Sweden. 
And her mom is like, oh yeah, that was really hard for us to read how much you hated Sweden. And she's like, what was up with that? Like, why didn't you let me come home? And her mom was like, well, because Lars was staying in our town. If you had come home early, he would have thought you hated his family and we didn't want to be rude to Lars's family. And she was like, wait, so I could have come home? God forbid Lars think I had a problem with his parents. So she had always wanted to be an actress and there was just no question about it. Her parents were very supportive of her going to college. Her mom was actually quite supportive of her having a career and even putting a career above having a family and finding a husband to the extent that she often was like, don't have kids right now, ever <laughs> soon. Don't do it. Just make your career. So she goes to Boston University. Because she asks her teacher, she's like, where do actors go? And he's like, Boston University. And she was like, done. <laughs> Gonna go to Boston. So she goes to Boston University. She's in the college acting program. She's in a bunch of student productions. She does this whole thing about how at BU, you cannot be in a play until after your freshman year. And she had started off in a smaller kind of community college because she hadn't been able to apply her senior year because she'd been in Sweden. So when she transferred to BU, she was already technically a sophomore and she was frustrated that that meant she only had two years to be in the school plays. There's only two plays per semester that only gave her a few opportunities to even be in a play in her senior year. One of the two plays only had two characters. She goes, I was stunned. We were being robbed. I became very bold indeed and determined that we were going to organize a protest. That is until I got cast as one of the two roles in the play, Jesse and the Bandit Queen. Then the fire behind my potentially super badass protest scheme kind of fizzled. Turns out I didn't see such a big need to strive for the greater good when I was the one getting the good. So then she graduates. She actually, no, she doesn't. Well, she says she graduated. And until the coming out of this book, she never admitted that she never graduated because she just told her parents she graduated and she didn't want them to ever find out that she lied because she just didn't finish any of her assignments. Yeah, she had heard about taking an incomplete when there was a big term paper due. She was like, I'll just take the incomplete. And then she didn't know she'd like go back later and actually complete. So she didn't have enough credits to graduate. And she just didn't mention graduation to her parents. And her parents were too, I guess, polite to ever bring up. Why didn't you invite us? And so she's been lying in in magazines and everything. Every interview she's done until this book she said, oh, yeah, I graduated from Boston University. And here's where it gets weird. So she wants to be an actress, but she has no idea how to become an actress. And for some reason, she doesn't ask anybody. But instead, what she does is she goes, oh, if you become a model, models sometimes get very famous and then they get offered acting roles. So the <laughs> easiest way to become an actress is to become a famous model. And then the acting roles will just be handed to me. I will say on one hand, that is stupid. But on the other hand, she did go to acting school. And if she walked out of acting school with no understanding of how to get an agent and become an actor, she didn't even know what city to move to. It sounds like nobody had mentioned Los Angeles to her. She went to two different colleges and studied acting and not one person said Los Angeles. So she moves to New York City to become a model. To become a model turned actress. She moves to New York City to become a multi-hyphenate, as we all do. I tried to become a comedian and I ended up a podcaster. I should have started by trying to be a podcaster. I'd probably be doing a live tour with a Netflix special right now. Idiot. So she moves to New York to become a model. Her first day, someone is like, you should be a model. And she's like, oh my God, this is so easy. And then she goes up to his office and he's like, what you should do first is let me take some nudes right now. And she's like, no. And he's like, no, that's what all the models do. And she's like, I kind of don't. This is like the first time in her life she's ever had a backbone. And thank goodness. The thing is, I think she's always had a backbone, but the problem is then whenever she shows it, people are like, don't do that. She doesn't do it. She's like, I guess being a model is going to be harder than I thought. And so she gets a job at Ann Taylor. This is crazy. <laughs> so she gets a job at Ann Taylor. And one day- her, the, Not even like her first day on the job. She sees an empty seat in the display window. So there's two mannequins sitting at a table and there's a third empty seat in the window display. And she looks to the other girls and she's like, do you dare me to go sit in that seat? And they're like, 
I guess. I can't imagine they did. If I had been folding sweaters at Ann Taylor for two years and the six foot soon to be Oscar winner comes in and was like, wouldn't it be funny if I did a gag? I'd be like, no, <laughs> fold that. So she goes, she sits in the seat and acts like a mannequin and people just stop and they stare in the window like, is that a mannequin? Is that a person? And her manager comes over and is like, what the fuck are you doing? But then the manager sees the crowd that's gathered and it's like, wait, just stay, just stay there. So every Saturday, she's a mannequin now. <laughs> and she like really commits to the bit. Anytime someone points out that she's a fake robot, she'll be like, one time they pointed out that I had hairs on my arms, so I shaved my arms. And then another time they're like, but there's no electricity. So she started wearing a plug up her butt. <laughs> she ran a cord down her leg. Whatever. That's what I said. And she would like tie things around her hands so that people would be like, look, you can see that it's animatronic. And then she just got really into being the best mannequin she could be. She's like, I learned how to time it perfectly. Just when they would lose attention and leave, I would blink or move. And they would go, oh my gosh, she's alive. It's real. And then at one point, like Mrs. Ann Taylor, whoever the CEO of Ann Taylor was. Ann. Was it Ann? I, th I think it's Anne came to the store and was like, wow, that's amazing what you do. You look just like an Ann Taylor woman. And she goes, thanks. I'm trying to be a model. I'd love to be in the catalog. And the lady's like, yeah, that's not how it works. That's, we don't do that. Anyway, so in the window, a waiter from the upstairs restaurant comes and brings food as part of the gag, I guess. And then a while later, she sees him again on the stairs and he's like, do you want to get coffee? And he goes, hey, big girl, go for coffee. <laughs> Was that, that Brooklyn? is mean. Somebody looked at me and said, hey, big girl. I go, shut the fuck up. That's like what my brother would say to like hurt my feelings. She later became baby doll instead of big girl. His name was Richard Imolo, an Italian-American waiter from Brooklyn. It turned out that he was very charming and incredibly smart, and I felt him to be so exotic. He was cool and older. <laughs> he wore a cashmere coat and smoked cigars. I thought he was the most unique person I'd ever met, not realizing yet that there were, I don't know, thousands of Italian-American waiters from Brooklyn and New York City. She literally is just like, this is the most interesting and unique man in the world. She moves in with him pretty quickly and then marries him because she's just like panic stricken that her parents are going to find out that she lives with a man she I isn't married you. to. They would play this game where they would call her every Saturday and be like, where's your roommate? And she'd be like, she's out. And then they'd be like, okay, well, we'll call back later. And she'd be like, She's always going to be out. She's an out girl. And they'd be like, where is she now? And then she'd be like, she's sleeping. And then she started pretending to go to church. Yeah, for some reason, she's like, I go to this church on Sundays, so don't call on Sundays. And she said it was the Swedish church she had walked by. She's like, a, a detail was supposed to help the lie. And then one day, my mom was like, hey, where were you this morning? And I was like, church, Swedish church. And her mom goes, I called the church. They've never heard of you. And I was like, da, da, da. And she's like, I'm getting married. They get married. It's great. It's not great. The day of, he like loses all her luggage. She leaves it outside on the sidewalk, outside a bar. When I realized this all the way back in New York, I'm ashamed to admit I said, if I had a knife right now, I'd stab you in the heart. Happy okay. marriage. Even though I'd now developed a significant side hustle with the window mannequin thing, you could also find me in the window of a cute boutique in Soho on Sundays. I guess she was just going around town being a fake mannequin. That was her job. What a crazy job to make. I love that she did that. So then she gets a job actually modeling. She starts going to different modeling agencies. They all don't want her because she's too old and tall. They, she said the ideal was 18 years old and five foot eight to five foot 10. And she was 22 years old and six foot 
So she says, the more agencies I went to, the shorter and younger I became. She joins with this thing called Zoli Agency, and she's doing a lot of hand modeling, a lot of body doubling. She's so funny. She's like, I wasn't pretty. You know, I got a Victoria's Secret catalog, but they only wanted my body. And I'm like, oh, the, the horrors. <laughs> that horrible feeling when you know that you're so ugly, Victoria's Secret only wants most of you. <laughs> also, there's a photo in here, and her face is in it, and she looks incredible stunning but she talks about all the humiliating go sees and auditioning for commercials and she'd always get gigs because she could do the talent they always needed somebody who played piano or knew the flute well they always thought they needed that they would always be like we need a model who can play the piano and then as soon as she would start actually playing the piano they'd be like all right well we need you to act like you're playing the piano and like flatten out your fingers so we can see the nail polish that this is actually an ad for and then they would be like we need someone to play the flute and so she would start playing the flute and they'd be like well why do you look ugly when you play the flute and she's like that's how you play the flute you have to pucker your mouth and they were like well stop she went to italy because things were going so bad in new york got one commercial where she was doing soap and at the end a man says that her skin is splendida which is italian for splendid and apparently every time he said it she couldn't take the compliment and she'd like look really ashamed she'd be like no no no, no it's not <laughs> and the lady was like you have to stop doing this this is a commercial <laughs> you can't be modest in a commercial and they just took her off the commercial she gets one big job and it's for Italian Vogue. She's going to do watches for them. She's going to be a hand model for Italian Vogue. And she goes and her nails are too long. So they have the manicurist cut down her fingernails. But then the manicurist makes her nails too short. So now they're like, well, now you're unshootable. We can only literally use your wrist. So she does an eight-page wrist spread for Vogue magazine. And when she comes back, she tells everyone that she has an eight-page Vogue spread coming out. And she like dines out on that for a while. She says she keeps getting other roles because everyone's like, oh, you're in Vogue soon. And she's like, uh-huh, soon, later though. It'll be here soon. She, whenever anybody was like, when's that coming out? She'd be like, you know, Europe. <laughs> they are laissez-faire. <laughs> anyway, so she is back in New York. And because she's the one who always gets gigs because she does weird acting tasks, they get a call being like, oh, this movie is casting and they're going to some modeling agencies looking to see if they know anyone. Do you have anyone you want to send out on this audition? And they were like, yes, Gina. So they send her out on this audition. She gets the role. The her first acting audition of her life. She didn't have an acting agent. The job was Tootsie, a movie with Dustin Hoffman directed by Sydney Poitier. No. <laughs> Sydney Pollock. I was flabbergasted that such a thing could happen so fast. Or was I? Because part of me felt like, well, this was exactly what was supposed to happen. So she is bizarrely calm on set. And that's what catches Dustin Hoffman's eye. On her first day in her first movie, she's shooting in her underwear. And he's like, why aren't you nervous? And I think it just didn't occur to her that she should be because this is what she'd planned on doing. She's so funny because she doesn't know anything. I call it the Bella Twins effect. You go so much further because you just don't know the rules and so you don't know enough to be afraid. Just all these crazy things. So like Dustin Hoffman really takes her under his belt. He gives her so much good feedback. One of the pieces of advice he gives her is watch your dailies every day. He wanted to teach me how to watch them. He felt that reviewing what you'd shot could be very valuable tool for an actor. This is honestly some of my favorite advice I've read. In movies, I'd quickly discover that you have one shot at getting a scene right the day you shoot it. It's not like theater where there's another performance the next night. Over the years, I'd come to realize it would always be the case that if I'd shot the scene the next day, I would have done a better job. But I learned that it's all right to do the best I can at that time, and I'll do better next time. This wound up being incredibly freeing for someone who tended toward the hyper self-critical. I can tell you how liberating that feeling would come to be in every aspect of my life. I'm doing the best I can today. And it all stemmed from the moment of generosity from Dustin Hoffman on her first movie. His other piece of advice was never sleep with your co-stars, he said. 
It's just a bad idea. It complicates everything. Here's what you say if they hit on you. Oh, I would love to. You're very attractive, but I don't want to ruin the sexual tension between us. She ends up using it on Jack Nicholson not that long after that. She says, well, that's very flattering, Mr. Uh, Jack, but you see, I have a feeling we're going to end up working together someday. And well, I'd hate to have ruined the sexual tension between us. Jack didn't skip a beat. Aw, man, who told you to say that? <laughs> I mean, she's just so cute. She's so fucking excited to be at her first movie. She shows up every single day. She didn't realize that you didn't have to go on the days that you're not shooting. And she's like, I don't know. I got there every day at 6 a.m. Some days they did my makeup. Other days they didn't. I didn't really know why. <laughs> I just thought we showed up to work every day. And she's like, people just kind of assumed that I was excited to be there. And I was. <laughs> so another thing she did well, she didn't realize that like the chairs were put out there by the crew specifically. And so she really wanted to learn everything she could. And she would just take one of those chairs and set up next to Sidney Pollock. Well, okay. So they set up the chairs and only the top build stars had chairs with their names on them. But her character was a soap actress in the movie. So there was a prop that had a prop <laughs> director's chair that had her character's name on it. So she would just go into the prop closet pull out her character's chair and put it next to the director. And she's like, I didn't know that you're not supposed to do that. And then finally they came and would try to get her to go out. But Sydney loved having her there because whenever he'd be like, oh, this is awful. This is going to be a flop. She'd be like, no, it's going to be so good. He's like, I need her here for confidence. So she just sat next to him the whole time and chatted and learned. Obviously, Tootsie's a huge success. Dabney Coleman, who was in that movie, Tootsie, recommended me for the role of Wendy, the naive idealistic intern in Buffalo Bill. And my audition was good enough that I was able to decamp to Hollywood already with a paying job. The pilot was subsequently picked up for a run of 13 episodes. So when I moved to LA full time, Richard came with me. Then he doesn't like LA. So he goes back and they just kind of get divorced. And then there's a one year hiatus between the seasons of Buffalo Bill and she gets colossally depressed and I'm kind of like okay lady if this the worst thing that ever happened to you in your career was for one year your tv show was on hiatus yeah I mean this is like you said busy Phillips disease where when it gets too good too quick you you lose your grit when you're not a Constance Wu who spent 10 years waiting tables and grinding it out you think that if there's six months of no work you're a flash in the pan. It's come and gone. You're over, kid. Go back home. But it's just kind of how it, the industry works. And she does learn that later on. She has like a 10-year gap later. Yeah. Buffalo Bill gets picked back up. It all works out. At one point, she even gets to write a script. I think the secret of this book is that she would love to write a script. Instead, she thought it'd be easier to write a book. So her parents came out to LA to visit her. While they'd been in LA, I told my dad that I was going to write an episode of Buffalo Bill, which caused him to say, be sure to give good parts to the other people too. <laughs> so her parents are the cutest people. She ends up doing a lot more guest starring, which she still at that point doesn't have enough experience to know is just kind of a lower rung on the cast sheet job. She's like, I'm a guest star. They're bringing me in because I'm a star here to sort of amplify the show. <laughs> She's been in one movie and one TV show. She talks about being a guest star on David Hasselhoff's show, Night Writer. I'll admit I was trepidatious when David invited me to his trailer at lunchtime. Fortunately, all he wanted to do was have me page through the voluminous collection of clippings he'd scrapbooked that detailed his superstardom as a singer in Germany. Can you imagine if a man took you back to his trailer and you're like, oh no, I'm going to get me too'd. And instead he's like, look at all these articles about me. Look at my scrapbook. <laughs> Humiliating. She also has a really funny little aside about height because she is a very tall woman and she talks about how their a reputation in Hollywood for 
actors to be extremely short. And she says that she's developed this way of standing for a close-up shot where she stands with her feet wide and her knees buckled in so that she looks quite a bit shorter. And she says, I'll admit, I don't really care right now about trying to fix the notion that men should always be taller than women in romantic movies. There are enough seriously underrepresented groups of people that I can't handle trying to add another one. I love that she's like, short kings, I don't have time for you. There's orphans. <laughs> so she's working on a show with Pierce Brosnan at one point, and she says that Pierce loved to sing on set between takes. And Gina being Gina, she was she would just join in and sing along with him. And finally, one day he turns to her and goes, must you sing too? I'm sorry, but she is a Julia Roberts character. She is the moment in Pretty Woman when Julie Roberts puts her hand in the necklace case and he shuts it and then she's like, ah! <laughs> like that's Gina Davis's entire personality. She's so silly and like it's so earnest where she's like, I don't know, we're all singing. Why wouldn't I sing too? And then it's just like, no, that's like just him doing his thing. She's the quintessential hot girl who doesn't know she's hot and thinks she's just weird. She really is. And I'm happy for her. She ends up getting her own TV show called Sarah. And she thinks that this is like her Mary Tyler Moore. They describe it to her as her Mary Tyler Moore moment. So she thinks that she's a very involved main character producer. She comes to this issue often where she thinks it's like a collaborative experience. And then they're like, go be on camera and stop making us have coffee with you. She has a really great way of showing how fickle and ridiculous Hollywood is because they write this character, Sarah, for her. She guest stars on Family Ties as Sarah. They're like, we're going to make this into a TV show. They write the pilot for her and then they test the pilot and they come back and go, we don't think you're pretty enough. We've recast you. They take that pilot to the network. The network goes, no, this isn't right. They recast Gina Davis as Sarah. And then on the first episode, they're like, we think we need to make you uglier to make you more relatable. And she's like, how could I have been both too pretty and too ugly for the role that was meant for me? She takes the head of NBC out to lunch, thinking that she can have a good talk with him. and He's going to help her get everything on track because she's not being respected enough. And she goes, in my opinion, I'm not being utilized in the way that I could. And the show needs to be great or else why are we doing it? The way I thought things might go was that Brandon would either talk to the producers and make some changes or not pick it up for any more episodes. And he opted for the second fix. That was Sarah in a nutshell. I wasn't Sarah to them. Never was and never would be. What does that even mean? I guess it just means that she was an actress who was cast to be in this thing. She wasn't Sarah. It was not her Mary Tyler Moore moment. She then gives us this little chip of information that I love. Her name is Gina, short for Virginia, spelled G-E-E-N-A. And she always thought her mom just didn't know how to spell Gina. And finally, her mom goes, oh, that's not true. I lived in a neighborhood full of Italians for a time, which is very funny to me. I knew very well how to spell Gina. Then why didn't you spell it G-I-N-A? I didn't want anyone to think it was pronounced like Gina, as in vagina. Here I thought my name was misspelled for a sweet, funny reason, but it turned out my entire identity was based on the fear of vaginas. Okay, so next she gets back into movies. She shoots a movie called Transylvania 65000. Which sounds horrific. Apparently it was horrific. It starred her and Jeff Goldblum and a bunch of other people, I think. And the guy who wrote it had never directed anything, Rudy DeLuca. And she really describes one of the worst experiences on set. First of all, he's the first person who ever sexually harassed her. The story is that when she went into audition, there's a scene in the movie where she sits on a man's lap and pushes her bosoms in his face. And the director's like, well, you need to do that to me to show it. And she's like, no. And he's like, you have to. And there's another man in the room. And that guy's kind of like, well, what are you going to do? And so she does it and she's like, I regretted immediately doing it and I promised I would never do it again. This would be the first in a series of such incidents in my career that made me realize the mistreatment of female actors was everywhere and plentiful and so, so disheartening. It left me with a shame and humiliation that was hard to get past and made me realize how vulnerable I really was. The number of times over the years where I'd be in the position of 
didn't want to do it, got bullied into it anyways, would become staggering. Becoming my authentic self and protecting that person was hardly a linear endeavor. As with many things in life, it tended to be two steps forward, one back. And this is about how she's like, no matter how many times I said, I'm never gonna let that happen again. It was never just okay. And then it didn't. It's like a continual process of learning how to stand up for yourself authentically. The set sounds awful. The guy would fall asleep in his chair. At one point, she tells a story about how they needed wind to come in through a window. And so the set designer turns on a fan and the director goes more wind. And so he turns it up higher and he goes, there's no wind. And he, they finally have it all the way up. And they're like, what the fuck? It looks like a hurricane coming through the window. And they finally look at the director and he's just like looking at the wrong window. <laughs> they said it one time. It was a vampire movie and somebody died. So they put death makeup on him and the actor comes out to set and the director goes, somebody call an ambulance. He looks unwell. <laughs> he thought the actor was just dying in real life. He seems like a bad director, but the silver lining is that on set for Transylvania 65000, she meets Jeff Goldblum, who she still describes as the love of her life. And I will say it does always irk me a little bit or stress me out when someone describes the love of their life and I know that they broke up and she's been married I think twice two or three times since yeah she's had four husbands in total she's been engaged one other time at least I don't know she still is so in love with him I think and there's a photo of them where I'm like I'm in love with you guys as a duo I'm not a shipper but I ship did we mention that when I left for the movie I was living with and engaged to one of the most wonderful men I've ever known the actor Christopher McDonald Gina (laughs) We didn't mention because that's the only time she mentions and it's after she mentions the love of her life, Jeff Goldblum. When did she get engaged again? (laughs) I don't know. There are some relationships that are like conveniently left out of this book. So she meets Jeff Goldblum. They fall in love. They make another movie together called The Fly. Directed by David Cronenberg. I don't know if it was a huge hit, but it was very well received. She said it was a once in a lifetime experience of collaboration that she'd always dreamt of. The three of them really went in hard on it together. Yeah. And you know the line, be afraid, be very afraid. That was Gina Davis in The Fly. She also has this thing where she's obsessed with creating sequels for the movie she's been in. So she writes out an entire plot for the sequel of what The Fly could be. And she's like, hey, studios, if you're interested. And I really think she means it. I think she kind of was like, maybe somebody from a network will read this. I hope they do. Oh, my God. Another thing that we forgot to say earlier is this part when after she's in Tootsie, One of her friends is talking to her mom back in their hometown. His friend is like, can you believe that Gina made it as an actress? And her mom goes, well, she studied acting in college. Like her parents didn't even know that there was a chance this couldn't work out. They thought it was just like if you went to school for engineering, you'd become an engineer. (laughs) You went to school for acting, you become an actor. That's what she studied to do. So she talks about the roles that she chose. She says, I'd realized by now that I really didn't want to play the kind of typical female roles I was seeing. I wasn't conventionally pretty enough to be cast as eye candy and I didn't want to be the girlfriend of the guy who goes off to do something cool. I wanted to have cool challenges too. That's why I chose these unusual films like The Fly and Beetlejuice and pretty much every movie after those two. So next she does Beetlejuice. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. The funny story here is that she goes up to Tim Burton and says, I just want you to know I get this movie. I really get it, I said. Later, he would tell me that one of the reasons he cast me was because he wasn't sure he really got the movie. And so it might be handy to have someone around who was very sure that they knew what they were talking about. (laughs) I just like can picture her that she shows up and is so emphatic. And it's funny because this whole book is about how shy she is. And I do believe that she's constantly filled with anxiety and regret. And it's like, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not supposed to do that. But like her true nature is showing up and being like, I get this movie. You have to cast me in it. Like, I understand it. I am, we get it. Her true nature is to just come at everything with her full self. Just the fact that she went into the Sarah writer's room and she's like, hey guys, I can't wait to meet you. Let's sit down and brainstorm. And it didn't even occur to her that they did not want her to do that. 
So she talks more about the types of roles she plays. She says, I'd gotten quite good at picking the parts I wanted to play. And of course, you can only pick from the roles you're offered. But I was having a terrific time with all the colorful characters. But often the most enthusiastic offers were for quite bland, one-dimensional characters. Why were they so often thinking of me for these roles? I eventually figured out why. People were assuming that the characters I was playing were colorful because I made them colorful. Therefore, if they cast me in a boring one-dimensional female role in their movie, I would be able to just magically make the part interesting. But I couldn't. It had to be in the script already. I was just good at choosing colorful parts. So here she like deflects and also reclaims credit. I can't decide how I feel about her thought process here because... I think on one hand, give yourself more credit. You are good at acting, obviously. You're an Oscar winner for Christ's sakes. But also she is like, no, I did pick them. I do a good job picking. Her and Jeff get married in Vegas. They didn't know it was going to happen, but they went to Vegas with two of their friends, a couple friends. And the couples were like, well, we thought we were here for a surprise wedding. And Jeff is like, okay, good idea. And they get married. I knew I wanted to marry him. No question about that, but still. So Jeff and I went and sat on the curb in front of Caesar's Palace to discuss it. I was teary and Jeff tried to make me feel better. It's fine, he said. We'll just plan for something else. But I think I do want to marry you tonight. I sniffled. Okay, then we'll do it tonight, Jeff said. Well, now I've ruined it by crying. The first hint of light was edging along Las Vegas Boulevard. It was November 1st, 1987, and I had just married my soulmate. The Beetlejuice is a huge hit. She's on a roll. Next, she's in Earth Girls Are Easy, which was a movie with Jeff, her husband, Goldblum, Jim Carrey, and Damon Wayans. She says it was a really fun time on set, but at one point, the director took her aside and was like, could you be funnier? And she's like, I don't think I could be. So I had my friend come watch me on set, and my friend was like, you seemed funny to me. And she decides, I'm not going to change the way I'm acting. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because I'm pretty sure I'm doing it right. Three days later, with me not having changed a thing in my approach to the character, Julian took me aside once again. I don't know what you're doing different, he said, but everyone is thrilled. It's terrific. They say it's so much funnier. So there was this book that she'd read a while ago called The Accidental Tourist that she became obsessed with. And she reached out to her agent, to everyone she knew to be like, how do you buy the rights to a book? And they were like, okay, here's how you do it. So she reached out to try and buy the rights to this book. And they were like, those rights are long sold. (sighs) So she was heartbroken. She was like, this was the project that meant the most to me. And then she finds out her friend is making it. So she decides to pitch herself at dinner to be the star of this movie. So she really wrestles back and forth with this. She says, I was sick just thinking about it. My friend was going to make the movie of the book I adored, and I couldn't help but thinking that this was bad for my chances of getting the part. I knew by then how to fight for a part, but that had always been with people I didn't know. This time, I feared that my insane need to be liked would make it impossible to push for the role with an actual friend. I couldn't risk the possibility that Larry might pull away if I made him uncomfortable. But she realizes the biggest risk of all would be to not tell Larry how she feels. (laughs) So she tells him that she wants to be in the movie really badly. Apparently, he never would have thought of her for that role. And so he asks her to test for it. She gets an opportunity to audition and she auditions her friggin' heart out. And she gets it. And she wins an Oscar. But first, there's drama on the set. You guys, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast I recently discovered called Pod Crushed. If you are a fan of the Netflix show You, Gossip Girl, John Tucker Must Die, or my old coworker Kenny's intramural soccer team, then you might already be familiar with one of the hosts, Penn Badgley. Penn, along with his friends Nava and Sophie, have created this hilarious, unfiltered podcast to share stories about the awkwardness, anxiety, heartbreak, and self-discovery that we experience during our teens. 
On the show, they feature guests like CNBC favorite Drew Barrymore. They've interviewed other incredible guests like Evan Rachel Wood, Leighton Meester. They interviewed Kelsey Ballerini and Sebastian Stan. The list goes on. Picture this. It's like a beautiful, cringy crossover of This American Life meets Pen15. That's Podcrushed, baby. You don't want to miss the podcast where Penn Badgley reads your middle school story. Follow and listen to Podcrushed wherever you get your podcasts. While you've got a fresh podcast in your ears, hop into June's journey. Sit back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape to the glamorous Roaring Twenties. June's Journey is my favorite cell phone game to just sit back and play whenever I'm on the train, watching TV, just as a little treat once I've completed a task. It's such a fun way to use your brain while also just kind of sitting back and chilling with a little bit of phone time. If you never get tired of a good whodunit, you'll love June's Journey. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You'll need to find objects devilishly hidden in intricate scenes filled with little details before the timer runs out. A variety of game modes and puzzles await. June's Journey has tons of unique features to keep you entertained. Chat and play with or against players when you join the detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. You can also let your imagination run wild by decorating and structuring your island to your own taste. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. She hires this personal acting coach, Roy London, who was recommended by Dustin Hoffman. And he comes in and he's basically her therapist. He never has her act out the character, but he has her do notes and notes and pages of studying. And he really helps her see it differently. And he comes in and he's like, have you thought about it this way? But more than anything, he helps her deal with her co-star, William Hurt. So William Hurt is a big old douchebag who takes his shit very seriously and is known to want to fuck with his co-stars by kind of like not letting them in. He's very cold. He's very brusque. He like won't act back at you. Like if he's not in the shot, he's not going to give you shit. He seems horrible. For example, when Bill entered the makeup trailer in the morning, if someone said, good morning, Bill, his answer might be good. Bill was chatting with me about how great the script was. And he was eloquently describing how delicate, how ethereal and fragile the foundation was upon which the story was built. I wanted to voice my agreement. So I said, yes, it's like it's made out of balsa wood or something. Big pause. You don't get it at all. What are you even talking about? <laughs> so he sounds like a big old douchebag. And basically she's working with Roy and she's like, I don't know what to do. He's throwing me off my game. And he says, you've got to throw him off instead. You're going to stand too close to Bill. Invade his space. If you're starting to feel insecure around him, you're going to laugh and tell him a joke. She says this was as much an acting challenge as a personal one. Muriel gives Macon no ground in the script. So it makes sense that I do the same with Bill off camera. And she talks about learning overall that you can't be so interested with what other people are thinking of you if they have their own agenda. If you spend all of your time trying to get in someone else's head, it's not going to go well. But if you just like stay in your own character as hard as you possibly can, what could go wrong? If you say, how are you, Bill? Roy said, and Bill replies, you wouldn't understand how I'm feeling. Your answer will be, oh, okay. See you on set. You are never to get sucked into doubting yourself. Muriel never does, so you will neither. This was one of the signal moments in my career in which a role I was playing was leading me to personal growth in my off-screen life. Bill's take on the world was Bill's. That didn't mean I had to mold myself in order to fit it. This was an astonishing revelation to me. I'd spent my entire life trying to massage everyone's feelings, walking on eggshells, subjugating my own wishes to keep the peace. I was far too interested in pleasing other people and keeping them happy and trying to figure out continually what they'd like me to be. So she is Muriel so fucking hard that it drives Bill crazy. 
and he complains to the director and he says, you don't understand what it's like, Larry. She's ruining everything. She's just talking all the time or tap dancing or telling jokes. She quotes the accidental tourist where her character, quote, talked so much almost ceaselessly while Macon was the kind of man to whom silence was better than music. Bill paused, letting the full horror of my behavior sink in. And Larry says, well, Bill, I don't know what to say to you. When it comes time to shoot, Gina's ready and you're not. I'm sorry, but I don't know how I can tell her to stop being ready. And then after that, Bill respects her. It ended up being one of the most fulfilling working relationships I've ever had. And Bill had very kind things to say about my performance when it all ended. So she finds out she's nominated for an Oscar for this role. For Best Supporting Actress. I was 32 years old and this was my first nomination for anything. The first message she gets is a telegram of congratulations from Bruce Willis, who she doesn't know. I had never met Bruce Willis. (laughs) Never, ever, ever. We had no mutual friends. Nothing. At the time, he was one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And he had taken the time to send a telegram congratulating me. How fantastic is that? And then she talks about trying to find a dress for the Oscars and how she didn't know that if you were going to borrow a dress, you had to do it directly from the designer. So she was just going to department stores asking to borrow dresses. And they were like, no. (laughs) And she'd have to be like, I'm that girl from Beetlejuice. (laughs) They'd be like, oh, okay, but still no. (laughs) Then she wins an Oscar and she says... I was Academy Award winner Gina Davis. It was the first award they presented of the night. And with that out of the way for the rest of my life, I thoroughly enjoyed the rest of the evening. And then it's so cute. The day after she wins an Oscar, her mom still teaches at a school and they have an Oscar ceremony at her school and they present her mom with the best mother of an Oscar winner award. (laughs) That's really cute. I love her family. And then she gets into the pull quote of the whole freaking book. Me and Ash are going to start doing a special series of how fucking annoying entertainment writing has become the way I don't even want to say has become I guess has always been but now we know the truth (laughs) they just always pull the most irrelevant part of a memoir and having read all of these memoirs I'm like if you're going to steal our clicks at least say something interesting (laughs) so we get to the Bill Murray stuff Once you win an Oscar, everything works out perfectly, right? Well, no, obviously. I still had plenty of challenges that forced me to realize I had yet to become my authentic self. In 1989, I made a movie called Quick Change directed by Howard Franklin and Bill Murray, who also starred in it. So she shows up for a meeting with them to see if she is the right person for this part. And the meeting takes place in a hotel suite. And as soon as I walked in the door, before I could even meet the other people in the room, Bill Murray came up to me excitedly and said, have you ever tried the thumper? It's like this massage device that they have set up on the bed and he insists that she try it out and she doesn't want to. She keeps politely saying no. Bill Murray wouldn't have it. He insisted, still smiling and exciting, that I lie on the bed and experience this strange kind of massage device. Pretty quickly, it was clear that this was a non-negotiable thing. I said no multiple times, but he wouldn't relent. I would have had to yell at him and cause a scene if I was to get him to give up trying to force me to do it. The other men in the room did nothing to make it stop. I realized with a profound sadness that I didn't yet have the ability to withstand this onslaught or to simply walk out. I ended up sort of perching across the corner of the bed while Murray placed the thing on my back for a total of about two seconds. Strangely, he never asked anything about if I'd liked it after that. She finds out that he asked her to do it to find out if she was going to be easy to work with, to be compliant. I had just won the Oscar and Murray thought I might have gotten a swelled head from that. So then the next story is about her... In the makeup trailer, they come and they're like, are you ready? And she's like, I need two minutes because wardrobe's still bringing me a belt. They're like, sounds good. Come out when you're ready. Mere seconds went by before the affable, everybody loves him, Bill Murray came raging into the trailer, violently banging the door open. What the fuck are you doing? He bellowed. Are you fucking kidding me? Get the fuck out there. He starts flipping out. He insists to get out there right away. And she says, there were easily more than 300 people there. And Murray was still screaming at me for all to see and hear. 
stand there, Murray shouted, pointing at the piece of tape on the asphalt and then still shouting, roll it. The funny undercut of this scene is that in the movie, he's dressed in a giant clown outfit with clown makeup. So this whole time he's like wearing clown clothes and screaming at her and being a huge asshole. She says, I would later find out that the screaming performance was all to make sure I knew my place. And she talks about why she's telling this story and the fact that later she and Bill were promoting the movie and he would act so flirty with her. He would act like we're best friends, we're best palios, me and my gal Gina. And she says that essentially the reason she's telling this story is like so many women in a situation like that, I didn't know how to avoid being treated that way. I shut up and played along. So this is essentially a story about how as she developed in her badassery, there were steps forward and steps back. And this, to her, the way she handled Bill Murray was a huge step back in her developing her own voice as a woman and feeling strong in her voice as a woman. And this book is a lot about women finding their voice in Hollywood in an industry that doesn't want to hear from them. And the pull quote that got pulled is a quote centering Bill Murray. I'm sorry. If you read 10 pages of this book, what the fuck? Why would you do that? Yeah. I also really respect that. She's like, listen, I had won an Oscar and I still didn't know that I was allowed to walk out of a meeting or I still didn't feel comfortable walking out of a meeting. I think that's very relatable. And especially because women's voices are like higher in tone compared to men's voices. If a woman wants to stand out over a man, it does require yelling if a man is being persistent. And if a woman yells, it's so severe and you don't want to be that person. And it's so stressful to stand up for yourself. And she didn't. And still the story being told is about how Bill Murray's an asshole. And it's like he is, but that's not the point. But then one year later, I met my Louise in the form of Susan Sarandon and everything changed. So this is all about Thelma and Louise. And I, I'll be honest, it almost brought tears to my eyes. I loved reading about it so much. It's not overstating it to say that Susan Sarandon has changed my life more than anyone I've ever known. So I'm excited to get into this. I've never seen Thel Thelma and Louise. I haven't either. We're going to do a Gina Davis movie night where we do Thelma and Louise. We'll do A League of One's Own. A League of Their Own. Whatever. We'll get into that next. That's a cross of a uh, room of one's own, which is thematically quite similar. Sure. And so in that sense, it's all the same. A movie night of one's own. We'll talk about it on the Patreon. So she talks about how Thelma and Louise came to be, the way that the writer got inspired. The writer had actually been mugged twice, once with Larry David. And she decided to write a story about women on a crime spree. The original casting of Thelma and Louise was Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand. That would have been a banger of a film. Then they had Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer, also a banger of a film. Later, Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep were in talks to play Thelma and Louise. That, that is a banger of a film. <laughs> Ridley Scott is directing it and she manages to get in for a conversation. And by manages, she had been throwing herself with all of her might at this. She said that she had her agent call every single week for a year to be like, hey, I'm still available. If you're still working on this one, I got a gal. <laughs> and luckily it worked. And so she goes in to meet with him to like do this all out full court push about why she should be Louise. Roy, her acting coach, had worked with her and they had decided that Louise is the role for her. She had matured. She was ready to play Louise and not Thelma. I laid out my stored up passionate arguments for why I absolutely had to be in the movie playing Louise. Ridley listened thoughtfully, then sat back in his chair. In other words, he said, you wouldn't play Thelma. I had to think quick. Had I just argued myself out of this film by passionately advocating for the wrong role? This pause was only very brief before I said, well, what's so interesting is while I've been talking, I've been listening to myself and all the reasons why I should play Louise. And you know what, Ridley? Ridley looked at me, apparently not knowing what. 
it just doesn't sound right, <laughs> I said. Then I just made shit up about why I absolutely had to be Thelma. So she ends up signing a contract to play either Thelma or Louise, depending on who else they ended up casting. They said she could probably be in the movie, but then they were just kind of grasping at straws. They like didn't really know what they were going to do. And she had another movie on the hook. And they were like, are you going to be able to do this other movie? And she was like, I don't know. I got to find out about this Thelma and Louise thing. And finally, at the very last second, they cast her and then they cast Susan Sarandon as Louise. And she is just an off Susan from the minute they meet. She shows up to the first meeting with Susan and Ridley Scott with some notes on the script. And she came in with like a plan of attack of how to quietly and nervously slip in some ideas, make it seem like there were Ridley's the whole time. She was going to space out all her suggestions over the course of like a year so that she didn't seem like she was attacking him too much. As we sat down to discuss the script that first day, I swear it was like on page one that Susan said, so my first line here, I think we should cut it. We don't need it. Or I suppose we could put it on page two. My jaw hit the floor. Susan went through each scene with confidence and ease. Ridley was completely unfazed, of course. Why I had assumed ahead of time that I needed to whip out the girly tropes, I had no idea, but there it was. So she gets just like a masterclass from Susan Sarandon in being calm and collected and get what you want. Susan was a revelation. Somehow I'd reached my mid-30s without being able to speak up for myself. Even when I was one of the leads in a movie about strong women, clearly something was up and this was going to be a whole new experience for me. But now the movie needed the rest of the cast and I was bold enough to make my suggestion. She suggested her ex-fiance, Christopher McDonald, who she had dumped for Jeff Goldblum. She sees four of the options for the male character and she's like, we have to go with that one. That one was, of course, Brad Pitt. She then, a while later, was sitting on a plane next to George Clooney and he goes... I hate that Brad Pitt. And she goes, no, isn't he your best friend? And she goes, no, I hate him. He got Thelma and Louise and I didn't. And she's like, did you want to be in Thelma and Louise? And he's like, don't you remember when I auditioned with you? It turns out the other three options for Brad Pitt's role were George Clooney, Mark Ruffalo, and Grant show. I don't know who Grant is. No, me either. But I know the other two. And she goes, oh, yes, you were so good. <laughs> she tells a story about how one day Ridley caught up with me and said, hey, Gina, you know that scene this afternoon when you and Susan are driving the car and you both are feeling so great, so free? What if you were to sit up on the back of a car seat and just take off your shirt? Which is such a man thing. Like, I love that man's like, what does a woman do when she's happy and free? She stands up in a car and shows her tits, tits to everyone. to the wind. That's what women do when they're feeling good. She's like, how can I just like kind of make him forget he said that? She goes to Susan and it's like, Susan, I'm not sure what to do about this. And Susan is in the middle of eating, puts her utensils down, walks up to Ridley and says, Gina's not taking her top off. And then she calmly turned around and sauntered back, sat down, took up her knife and fork and dug back into her lunch. Every day was like that. A kind of reprogramming for me just to observe Susan moving through the world was like learning a new language or something. She just was who she was at all times. She just talks about how much fun they had. They loved it. All the hijinks of the set. There's a scene where they blow up a tanker and they're like, you have to get our reaction live. It has to be us actually watching something get blown up for the first time. And so they do this whole double rig where they can get a footage of the tanker blowing up and footage of the two women's faces. And she's like, after all that, we actually forgot to react at all. So our faces were just like watching. So then we had to do a fake one anyway. Then the movie comes out. It is a smash sensation. And she casually says this. Sometime during the making of Thelma and Louise, Jeff Goldblum and I split up. Ultimately, it had been my decision to end it, but I also regretted it terribly. We still saw each other quite a lot at first, which eased the transition a bit. But I feel now that I was too hasty, I should have given us more time. I've only ever wished him happiness. It was a truly magical chapter in my life. What the fuck? What happened? What happened? Why don't you tell us? My theory based on this is that she was like coming into herself 
in Thelma and Louise. She was in a transformative period and maybe she was hasty in certain decisions. There could have been a lot of other things going on. And I just don't know because she won't tell us. Also, when it's year two of four husbands, you got to be like, how many transitional periods have you been in? I don't know. She just calls him the love of her life. She talks about she regretted breaking up with him. And I'm just like, then why? I don't know. So she talks about how important Thelma and Louise was to her. And it was the first time that women and girls were coming up to her constantly and being like, you made such an important movie to me. We loved it so much. And she's like, oh my God, I need to start making roles, not based on what men are going to think, but for women. Yeah. She wants women to see movies and think that's dope. She thinks it's going to have this major impact on the culture. She says Thelma and Louise became a cultural landmark. It was hailed as a bright new beginning for film starring women. Whether the press loved the movie or not, they were unequivocal in predicting that it would change everything. Turns out its impact on Hollywood culture was very easy to measure. Nothing changed, but I did. This is something that I kind of want to disagree with. And I obviously am not there, so I don't know. And she does have a data institute on movies. Right. With female representation. (laughs) We'll get into her data later. But from the time she started her data institute to now, things have changed. So I think that there wasn't like a marked change in that moment. But I do think it kind of set flags up for certain people who care, people like Gina Davis, people who want to make a difference in representation. And they're doing it. Maybe the change wasn't immediate upon seeing Thelma and Louise. But I think the kids who saw Thelma and Louise and the people who were changed by it did something. You just didn't see it then. So after Thelma and Louise, she did A League of Their Own. Ever heard of it? This is my, I think, one of my favorite movies of all time. I love this movie so much. For those of you who don't know, Bug's name was going to be Dottie. I just always dreamed of having a dog named Dottie Henson after Gina Davis's character in A League of Their Own. But then when I got Bug, you'll see when we watch A League of Their Own, Dottie is so composed and elegant. And if you've met Bug... You know that it just doesn't fit. She could have been Kit, which is Gina Davis's sister in the movie, but I didn't really like that name as much. But someday I'll have a dog named Dottie. Maybe Bug will have an elegant sister. She's in a league of their own. This movie, I mean, once again, she says that there are like young women who were inspired to become athletes based on this movie. Friggin' Abby Wambach told her that she took up soccer because of a league of their own. There's not a ton of gossip from this movie. She just says Tom Hanks is the nicest guy in the world in real life, which was wonderful and also pissed me off. I felt I had built a solid reputation for being the nicest person on the sets of my movies, but you simply can't out-nice Tom. He's also funny as hell, up for anything, and ready to go at all times. Because it is a funny movie, she asks for them to write more jokes for her character, and they say, no, it's hard. It's hard to come up with jokes for women. And she said, why not imagine I'm Billy Crystal and pretend you're writing funny lines for him, and then it'll just be me who says them. And then they, they never changed the script. So then she's with another guy. So she touches on this topic a few times throughout the book, but never like explicitly dives into it. She talks about how in romantic relationships, she often becomes yet another version of herself that's much more like passive and girlfriendy. And she talks about how she's had a couple friendships that turned romantic. And she has a really hard time in those situations, staying herself, staying the person that they originally fell in love with, their friend, because it's hard for her not to slip into like the Gina girlfriend character. And she talks about one time when they went on safari and she's out by herself going to the bathroom and she comes eye to eye with a snake and she just keeps getting closer and closer to the snake to kind of challenge and test herself. And then she turns around and goes back to the van and she like tells everyone what she did. And they were like, what are you stupid? That is a very dangerous snake. It could have blinded you. And she's like, well, I wasn't that close. And they were like, yeah, that's a spitting snake. 
it could have spit at you from eight feet away. And she's like, oops. <laughs> I feel like I do see that kind of shy, weird kid who then grows up to try and develop a voice and really be strong in who they are. And then we'll do these random rash things to be like, no, I am strong. And I kind of feel like this psycho snake moment was one of those moments of being like, what am I afraid of? Nothing. And then you're like, no, 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 that actually was something you should have been afraid of. So after A League of Her Own, she does this movie Hero. Well, in Hero, when she signed on to it, she hated the ending and she had them write into her contract that they would rewrite the ending. And as the movie kept going on and on and on, the ending never changed. This is the first time she fully, fully stood her ground on set to say, you said you were going to change the ending. I don't think the movie makes sense with the ending you've written. Change it or I'm walking. And so they finally changed it. And she says... There was something bigger here at play than just the scene. An agreement had been tossed aside and I had been expected to be treated like someone whose opinions were valued. I knew what I was doing by this point in my career. I believe what happened was that Steven and the producers fully expected the writer to change the ending, but he decided he didn't want to change it after all and felt that there would be no repercussions if he didn't. I have no way of knowing what actually happened, but I do know that I couldn't let it stand. So she stands her ground and she's really proud of herself and they changed the end of the movie. Then we get into her next husband... His name is Rennie, and he is eccentric. He's like a producer-director, and he does a lot of big, crazy things, and she really likes the way he lives large. But he is deeply insecure and controlling. He's constantly anxious about going to places that she's been with another boyfriend or husband. He doesn't want to be in any place that she was with an ex. And people know who she is, so she'll walk into a restaurant, and they'll be like, oh, Gina, welcome back. And she'll be like, who were you here with before? One time he wants her to get all new sheets so that no one's ever slept in the sheets he's in. And they go to a sheet store and he makes her promise it's a sheet store she's never been to before. And they walk in and the woman goes, oh, it's nice to see you again. And he leaves and they get into a huge fight. And she's like, I swear I've never been there. And so she calls the woman and goes, why'd you say that? And she's like, we were neighbors. I used to see you all the time. And she says, I clearly bought into this idea that I needed to twist myself around rather than this being his problem. She also took some kind of shitty projects because he was involved in them and she would make promises to he, him. If you look up his Wikipedia, has been nominated for Boris Director Awards five times. He's done a lot of really embarrassing, over-the-top, shitty action films. But she stars in one of them. It's called... Cutthroat Island. She says it's the only time I've signed on to a project reluctantly. They were going to pay her $8 million. It was like the most a female actor had ever been paid before. All the money that they gave to her to get her to do it was taken out of his pocket. The implication in this chapter, although it's not said outright, is that she did two or three movies with him and she forewent a lot of actually good movies in order to make him happy. The only movie that seemed to be a little bit okay is The Long Kiss Goodnight. But mostly they were awful. I mean, Cutthroat was panned. Yeah, she did get a donkey with him, though, named Donkey Hody. He was super famous in Finland. It was the one time in her life that she lived like a real Hollywood lifestyle. They got some giant mansion in Santa Barbara, and they were always helicoptering around. And she said in Finland, he was a mega star, so they would go there and be treated like kings and queens. And then even though he had been so jealous and afraid and possessive of her cheating the whole time, about a year after The Long Kiss premiered, I filed for divorce from Rennie. He had betrayed me in one of the worst ways you can imagine. I don't intend to go into details here. Back then, the news, such as it was, didn't register all that much in the wider world. And I see no reason to make it register now. So the news was that he had gotten his assistant pregnant. But I will say how profoundly painful it was. I had held fast to the years of being mistrusted because I thought once he did trust me, he would always be the incredibly loving person he was otherwise. So at the end, my overwhelming reaction was less to do with the nature of the betrayal than the tremendous feeling of loss. I'd realized that I soldiered through all of that and yet didn't get the prize in the end. It was shattering. 
I toyed with the idea of naming this chapter, You Married Him. But given how it ended, I decided to give the donkey first billing because she still has that donkey. It's 27 years old. And she says it has the littlest feet and they're so cute. There's a couple of illustrations throughout this book. And one of them in this chapter is there's a donkey and she's looking at the donkey's feet with a magnifying glass. And the caption says, donkey Hody's feet are so small. Okay, so then she writes about how difficult it is to get jobs over 40, which, I mean, we see all the time in the entertainment industry. There's just this huge gap of space where women are just kind of uncastable. They cast a lot of late 30s women as young moms. And then 40-year-olds, there's nothing. Early 50s, there's nothing. And then you can be like a grandma or like an endearing older actress. This gap between movies was becoming worrisome. Three years, I'd been averaging one movie a year. I thought about taking out an ad in the trades, a full-page photo of me with only the caption, not for nothing, but I haven't retired, you know. Would have been funny. Then she gets really into the Olympics. And she's like, what sport could I do? And she decides archery. And she gets an archery coach. And she just starts doing archery all the time. And she gets to go to the Olympic qualifiers. She's ranked 24th in the nation. She wins this tournament in Italy. I guess she's just like really great at archery. And then she finds out she has like pretty severe ADD. The archery helps her overall. She says, becoming confident in my physical abilities, acknowledging that I had a right to take up space and be happy with my performance was the final piece of the puzzle. I started to believe that people weren't judging me every second of my life. I really began to like myself. She ends up having some children. She doesn't mention her fourth husband. So she got divorced in 2018, but she had been married for 17 years. So she married him in 2001, but she does not mention it at all. Just randomly. She's like, and then I had my daughter, by the way, I'm never going to talk about my kids in this book. And when you look it up, she had been married for quite some time. Yeah. When you look it up, she did have quite a lasting marriage. So I wonder what happened there that She thought to not mention it at all. Maybe it's still too fresh. Yeah, I think she just doesn't want to talk bad about the father of her children. So she ended up having three children later in life. And I want to go back to a quote that she has in the first chapter, actually, about having kids late in life. I just really liked it. She says, I had my kids late in life at 46 and 48, and I thought it was wonderful that it happened after I'd become more of who I was supposed to be. I think that that is really interesting because so much of this book is about her like truly coming into herself from such a shy and offbeat childhood. And she really takes pride in being a confident person. She gets finally another movie. She gets to be in the Stuart Little trilogy. She really loves it. She says it's actually very difficult acting with nothing. She says there was no mouse. There was no toy. There was no, she just had to act with air and Hugh Laurie. Anyways, like I said, she gets diagnosed with ADD, which really kind of clarifies certain things for her, like her fixation on archery. She also at one point got really into pumpkin carving, the way she just kind of like set her mind to learning Swedish and did, but she like couldn't finish her homework ever. So that was very clarifying with the way she kind of reframes the way she goes after certain things. She also, with her children, was watching a lot more children's television, and it really dawned on her how unequal boys and girls are represented on TV. And so she sets out to create this entire research project. She does like a two-year-long research project to analyze male and female characters on television and in kids' movies and finds out that it is severely unequal. They present to all the major studios. They go to Disney. They go to Pixar. They go everywhere. And they say, like, look at the lack of equality here. Look at the lack of representation. And most of them, except one studio that she doesn't name, they like, wow, looking at the numbers in front of me, we've got to do better. The great thing is my plan is working. The data really was the magic key to the making change. In the fall of 2019, something historic happened. For the first time, female leads and co-leads in family films reached gender parity. In early 2020, our research found that the same has happened in television for kids. And in 2021, 
Gender parity for minor and secondary female characters in popular television programming was achieved for the first time in history. I'm happy to report that the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media has become the go-to resource for research and insights into on-screen bias in global family entertainment and media, be it biases of gender identity, race, ethnicity, LGBTQIA+, body size, age, or people with disabilities. And I was honored to receive a second Academy Award in 2019, the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award for the work I'd been doing. I love reading about how passionate she is about it. I feel like most books have like a second to last chapter about their like random businesses. And I kind of love that her random business is a quality on television. She then has this really weird part about she was in this show called Commander in Chief where she plays the president. And listen, I really love Gina Davis. And I really think what she did was great. I think it is important to show young children gender equality. I feel like she's like, if I'm the president on TV, then people will be the president in real life. I'm like, okay. She really is punched in the gut by the cancellation of this show. She had said she would never want to do an hour long drama. When she found out she'd be the president of the United States, she was like, I'll do it. I don't even, I don't need to read anything. There were a lot of issues behind the scenes. The creator got fired and they ended up hiring a new creator, Stephen Bochco who's like famous for just churning out crap. She goes on to say that the way that she comforts herself over the cancellation of Commander in Chief is that there are parallel universes. And in these parallel universes, I am not Gina Prime, the one all other Ginas are a copy of, because surely the main Gina, the real Gina, would not have had her show canceled. Gina Prime's Commander in Chief ran for eight seasons. It changed everything and women got elected to the presidency. Just knowing that Gina Prime is out there and exists makes me feel better about my life. Why is this comforting? Because another version of me did get to keep playing that character and I admire her and looked up to her and she made the kind of changes that the world desperately needs. And I hope that Gina Prime knows about and thinks fondly of me. Okay, I like her and maybe she's kidding, but I was like, Gina, Gina, you gotta get a grip. The show ended 16 years ago. It was not gonna fix the presidency. I think it lasted one season. Gina, 2006 was a really long time ago and that's what you're hoping for in an alternate universe. You're like the best version of me in the entire universe got to keep being on TV for six more seasons. Oh, sweet Gina. Then she writes really beautifully about the passing of her parents. Her mom suffered from Alzheimer's before she ended up losing her life. And she writes really sweetly about her mom's last few years and the way her dad cared for her. Her dad lived and stayed strong until about 95 And then the last like two months of his life, he declined pretty quickly. And she would spend a lot of time with both of them at the end of their lives. Nowadays, I very much feel in charge of my own destiny, ready to take on the world. But if what I've written here has led you to believe that I've become a certifiable full-time badass, don't be fooled. It's still very possible I may yet die of politeness. She also towards the end tells a story about an inappropriate moment on set at Commander-in-Chief where she in the moment says that was pretty inappropriate. And she really takes the time to acknowledge within herself It's such a small incident, but I can tell you how rewarding that moment was to know what to say with no pause, to think about how to say it, or even if I should. It still stands out in my mind because it was a time when I really felt how empowering it can be to live authentically. She was able to have an authentic response in the moment. I wasn't able to change the world before my daughter grew up, though she's amazing and powerful and gloriously self-possessed anyway. But my fond hope is that one day she will be able to say to her daughter, should she be so blessed, you know, once upon a time, women and girls were thought to be less important than men and boys. And my granddaughter will turn to her with an incredulous look and laugh and say, mom, are you making this up? And that has been the journey of her life. Ashley, final thoughts? I love Gina Davis. She is tall and she is silly. That's two of my favorite qualities in any people in the world. Yeah, I really like this book. I wouldn't say it was a top five book for me overall. It was not groundbreaking, but at no point did I think, 
damn, I wish I wasn't reading this book. No, and I really liked it. It reads quick. It's a real quick read. It's funny. It's cute, especially retelling it now. I was like, oh, there are so many like funny little moments. I think there is a message to this book. She had a story to tell and she had a point of why she was telling it. And she wrote towards that point and you feel inspired and you feel excited and you feel proud of her. And she had a life worth memoiring. She's been around for a really long time. She's seen many phases of Hollywood. I think that the fact that her life's mission has to become true to herself is a really wonderful life's mission. So Gina Davis, Dying of Politeness, we recommend it. You guys, this week on the Patreon, we are going to be, obviously, as we just said, we're doing a Gina Davis marathon. Ashley is going to talk about Joe Blow's book. What's his name? Joe Troman. <laughs> She's going to talk about that book. Save it for the Patreon. I see her gearing up. Save it for the Patreon. You guys are going to find all out of the hot gossip du jour. We don't know what it is because it's a week away and we like to keep it so fresh. We want it to be du jour. I want to burn my tongue on some fucking hot tea. We can't tell you what's going to be on the menu for next week because we have to see what's fresh at the farmer's market. In other news, please come to the Boston show. If you haven't bought tickets yet, I think it's this Thursday. Oh my God, yes. It's the day after tomorrow. So if you haven't bought tickets yet, now's the time to do it. Oh, and I meant to say, if you guys like the merch that is currently for sale, you have to buy it now because it is about to go away and there's going to be some really fresh, gorgeous stuff coming your way, but we're kind of changing. Yeah. We're changing our merch situation. The new stuff is going to be gorgeous, but if you like the old stuff, last call. Love you guys. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. Who do we freaking love the most? Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to Chicagoland Candy. Oh my God, my favorite flavor. Thank you, M Hunter 1992 I would love to go hunting with you sometime. Thank you, Brendizi D123. Keep it sleazy. Thank you, Coop 23145678. Oh my God, I would never fly the coop if you were the keeper. Thank you, Andy underscore 96. Um, I appreciate you 96 a thousand times. Thank you, a rant. You can rant any day. Thank you, Lulu John 20. Your leggings are second to none. Thank you, Be Better Brie 33. Don't be better. Just be who you are right now. That's the best Brie I know. Thank you, Yay FFGDBFHK. Yay for getting all those letters in at once. Thank you, Court LF. Let me know when you want to meet up for some tennis. Thank you, MMay444. May I just say thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy LG8. My favorite new cell phone model. Is that a thing? Anyway, thank you, SMK89. Shake my kicks. Back at ya. Thanks, everybody loves Raven. Everybody does love Raven. Thank you so much. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you. Bye.